On the show today, I'm joined by two very special guests. First up is OBE award-winning musician Mitch Err, responsible for the iconic song, Do They Know It's Christmas? And then my chat with Brandon Victor Dixon, who plays Aaron Burr in the hit musical Hamilton on Broadway. All that and more on today's episode. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and welcome to our final special episode of the year. Today, we bring you not one, but two interviews. First up, my chat with Midge Err, the OBE award-winning musician who is touring Australia next year. All his tour dates are in the show notes for this show, and we do encourage you to go over and book tickets. And then my second chat is with the iconic Brandon Victor Dixon. He's currently playing Aaron Burr in the smash musical Hamilton on Broadway. And as a bit of a special treat, we even do a little bit of a song. So if you'd like to hear my attempt at singing a number from Hamilton with one of the actual cast, certainly stay tuned for that. But first up, here's my chat with musician Majeur. Enjoy. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Now, what would you say inspired you to become a musician? Oh, quite simple. The radio. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up in a uh, kind of tenement slum on the outskirts of Glasgow in Scotland, uh, the only connection I had to the outside world uh, was the radio. Uh, and you were just kind of subjected to whatever that one radio station that we had uh, would play at you. So I heard everything from orchestras, classical music, you know, Frank Sinatra, you know, through to early 60s pop music. And that's what gave me my, my absolute desire to, uh, to play music. Mm. And what training did you go through to get to where you are today? Absolutely none. Um, I, I plagued my poor parents, who really were poor, uh, you know, to get me a guitar. Um, and uh, I, they managed to get me one when I was 10 years old. Uh, it was a second-hand uh, uh, guitar, uh, which cost half my dad's wages at the time. And I taught myself. I, I bought a book and I figured out the chords. And, and then when you get to early teens and you have a record player, you used to play various records over and over and over. And you'd sit with your guitar and you would try and figure out what the next chord was. And lo and behold, eventually you knew how to play that song, and you'd learn another, and uh, uh, and you just expanded. So it was just pure tenacity, really. Mm. So do you really thank your parents for getting you to where you are today? Yeah, I don't see how you, I couldn't, because even even when I uh, you know when I I joined my first uh, full time band when I was eighteen, uh, you know. You, 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 you're given the promise that you're going to earn you know, 20 pounds a week or something. And of course, it took just before I earned the, 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 the pounds a week. So, in order to pay that was necessary to have your guitar, your amplifier, your speaker cabinet, you know, your, your pedals, your microphone, all of that stuff, your poor old parents were dragged in every so often to try and bail you out and, and make, the, uh, make the higher purchase payments for you because... I didn't have any money, but they, they reaped the reward in the end. You know, they, 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 got, uh, they got big thank yous uh, much, much later down the line. Mm. And, and do you think that sort of the poor musician lifestyle is, is crucial to help musicians really find their sound and experience those things that they need to write music? 
Well, you know what? I'm not sure. It's different today. Um, if you look back over the last 50 or 60 years of contemporary pop music, you know, populist music, uh, it tends to be working class. It tends to, you know, all the interesting bands, uh, you know, cities and 70s, all bands consisted of middle class uh, kids with middle class upbringings, you know, maybe a Genesis or something like that. Uh, but even then, the most famous Genesis member, uh, Phil Collins, was a working class boy. So there was something about the, uh, the kind of, not the oppression, but the, the reality and roughness of life that gave you a great perspective, um, gave you the tenacity and the drive uh, necessary to uh, to to you know kind of get out of there or move up from there or or whatever. Um, so it, it it also gives you a great uh, resource for songwriting subjects. You know the reality and the roughness and the toughness of life. Um, so I think I think uh, back in the day that was an incredibly important thing. These days, a lot of the newer artists seem to bypass. The hard work involved in becoming successful by doing, you know, talent shows on television. Uh, so it's a kind of different route to it now. Mm. And you talk about the the new era of music. How do you think the digital age has changed or reshaped the music industry? Oh, it's done it massively. And whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I have a very mixed feelings about it. You know, we now have a generation, maybe two generations of people who've grown up who've never actually purchased a piece of music. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, get on the internet, uh, uh, you know, it's easily accessible, easily copyable. Um, and that has had a massive, massively devastating effect on, on the industry as we knew it, which might not be a bad thing. You know, that I think the problem is that you know, without uh, you know recompense for your work, uh, for you know making a record costs a lot of money. It involves other musicians. It involves you know artists, uh, graphic designers. You know all of that stuff, and they all have to get paid somewhere along the line. And what's happened over the last twenty years is because there's been uh, the income stream into the industry has dwindled away, and there is no wherewithal to sign the next really interesting act. You know, people just don't really get it anymore. You know, I don't know where we're going to find the next John Lennon or Jimi Hendrix or Kate Bush or, you know, or whoever, um, because the, the, the vehicle just isn't there now uh, to, um, to, to sign not just the obvious potential pop acts that, uh, that look the part and are the right age and, you know, sing the right kind of pop songs. But the ones, the artists that come along and shake everything you know, to its foundations because they are so different. And there is no one there to sign those artists, and that's a little worrying. It certainly is. So has, has music piracy ever been an issue for you personally? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's not been a major uh, issue at all. I mean, I, I, I've been one of the, you know, one of the, 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 the lucky guys, so, you know, back, uh, back in the 80s when I started... Um, you know, generating income for the first time uh, with uh, Ultrabox and Visage and stuff. I bought a studio, I bought the recording facilities. So I always wanted to learn how to do this completely on my own, even from way back then. 
and I invested in the technology and I invested time and energy learning how this works. So I, 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 it doesn't bother me that, that, that I'm not with a major label or, you know, I, I can do this stuff on my own. I can go to my studio, you know, write something, record it. I, I have the, uh, the facilities to, you know, put it on the internet. I have a following who, uh, who love what I do. It's, it's different for me. I think it's probably much more difficult for a new act, a new artist to come along and, and, and find an audience. Uh, it's, it's a really tall order, a very difficult thing. As I said, you, uh, you know, you have to be able to do an awful lot of stuff now. It's not, you know, it's not good enough now to be just a good songwriter or just a good guitarist or a good singer or a good drummer or a good keyboard player. I was having a discussion uh, the other day uh, with uh, with someone about what what necessitates being a musician these days, and it's not just your ability to be good at your instruments or be creative or you know write good music or whatever. You know these days, I think equivalent skills are probably you know the social media, uh, you know like, uh, computer skills, uh, recording skills. Uh, marketing, uh, promotion, you know, uh, being able to, you know, shoot and edit video, all of those things that, uh, you know, record companies uh, used to look out and, and kind of organize for you. There's no one there to do that for you anymore. So you have to be uh, this kind of jack of all trades. You have to be absolutely self-sufficient. And I'm fortunate that, you know, back in the 80s, I spent the time and effort and was interested in doing all of those things. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm fairly unscathed by the big change in the music industry. Mm. And you mentioned their social media and how you've got uh, some fans you're able to connect with through that. Do you think that without that tool that connects you directly to people who love your music, you'd still be able to keep going today? I think it'd be very remiss if you didn't uh, engage uh, with social media. You know, it, I, I didn't see the point of it for a while. I thought, okay, I've got a Facebook page and people who want to find you will, will find that. And then you think, well, no, because I'm not being overly proactive on that. And the, the, the big change came when uh, six years ago, my old band Ultravox decided to get back together to do a tour, you know, after a 25-year break. And, uh, and the word was out that this was happening, but no one believed it was happening uh, because it just seemed like such a ridiculous scenario that having not spoken for all that time that we would be considering going out and playing some music. So I joined Twitter just to do a selfie of the band and say, here we are in rehearsals and send it out there. And of course, it, 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 that split second appeased you know, the, the, the worries of, of people all around the world. Because the moment I did that, all those people started booking tickets to come and see us because they didn't want to, you know, take time off work or buy airplane tickets or book hotels or do any of that unless it was absolutely 100% happening. So I realized at that moment just how important the, uh, the connection is because, you know, in the old days, I suppose people, you know, people who liked your music might have written you a letter, they might have written you a fan letter, which... Inevitably, you never ever saw because they sent them to the agent or the record company or the management and the artist never saw them. But now they can feel absolutely connected. They can tweet you or send you a message or, 
you know, Instagram you or Facebook you or whatever, and you can answer them instantly. And I think that works both ways. So you can do a concert, and by the time you've come off stage and got yourself changed and ready to leave, you look at your Twitter feed, and people have already posted up pictures or video clips or talked about it, and you know that the moment they do that, someone halfway around the world has just read it. And that's just incredible, you know, so it'd be stupid not to use that. Mm, you're, you're certainly right there. And you've mentioned throughout this chat a few of the bands that you've played with, but you've also played solo. I mean, one of the times you were here in Australia, it was just you and a guitar. Which which performance style do you prefer, the big bands or solo? I, well, it, it's the old expression, the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. You know, when you're doing one, you want to be doing the other. Uh, you know, it's, it sounds as though it's a very easy, straightforward thing, walking on stage with just an acoustic guitar and, you know, keeping people entertained for an hour and a half or two hours. And it's not, it's actually a very tall order, it's quite a difficult thing to do and not everyone can do it. Um, and it gets quite insular uh, doing that. So when, I'm, when, I'm, when I've been out doing that for a few weeks, I kind of think, well, wouldn't it be great having a band around me because then I can strap on my electric guitar or stand behind a keyboard or whatever and, and you know, use volume. I can, I can play, you know, electric lead. I can play solo things. I can, you know, I can do instrumental music, uh, which you can't really do when you're standing there on your own. So there is no particular favourite. Um, each has its own strengths, you know, the, the camaraderie of, of performing with a band, um, you know, the, uh, the idea of, you know, letting your guitar sing a little bit for you, um, or the fact that you're standing on stage completely on your own and you can choose at, the, at that split second which song you want to play next, you know, without having to worry whether the band know it or not, uh, you know, so, uh, so they, they all have their own strengths. Mm. And when you're coming to Australia next March, will you be by yourself or with a band? No, I'm, I'm coming with a, a couple of multi-instrumentalist, uh, young multi-instrumentalist uh, musicians. Uh, so a couple of guys who, they are a band in their own right uh, called the India Electric Company. And they supported me uh, at various shows in the UK two or three years ago. And every time they supported me, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd stick my head out the, the door to find out who was making this wonderful sound. And it was these two lads, these two young guys. And, uh, and I invited them out to come out and tour with me as the opening act, then to back me uh, because I was performing um, and the, the, the Breathe album, it was an album I recorded 20 years ago that was very organic and very acoustic and atmospheric. And we went out and we did that entire album. And we had such a ball doing it. We, uh, we kind of came up with the Something From Everything uh, tour where we're going to play songs from every album that I've been associated with since 
What have what what fans, how have fans reacted at other concerts where you've done this uh, over in the UK or overseas? They absolutely loved it. Mm. I mean, absolutely loved it. Uh, I, I think there was a lot of doubt um, initially when I tried to explain what it was we were going out to do. You know, people sitting thinking, well, how can you possibly play Vienna or, you know, Fade to Grey, uh, you know, with just three people and, and acoustic instruments? Uh, because those songs are so heavily associated with, you know, electronics, with synthesizers and drum machines and, and whatever. And by rearranging the songs, and, and the songs are still very, uh, you know, recognisably those particular songs, uh, but by rearranging them for these uh, these instruments, you get to hear this intimate side of the songs that you didn't really realise was there before, but still maintaining all the atmospheres and, and, uh, and ambience uh, and, you know, the haunting element that a lot of my music has, but just doing it with organic instruments as opposed to electronic instruments. Mm. And speaking of atmosphere, you've chosen one of Adelaide's most vibrant venues to perform in, The Gov. Have you performed there before? I have. I did The Gov um, about five years ago. Uh, when I came, uh, when I came over with a full band, um, and it's a great place. It's a, it's a fantastic place to play. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back and uh, a repeat performance. So why do you love touring to Australia so much? I think there was a there was a funny period, uh, you know, when, between them when Ultravox uh, were, were very successful in Australia. And we used to tour there quite a bit. You know, every time there was a new album, we would do an Australian and uh, New Zealand tour. And um, uh, and and I think when uh, when I, I, Ultravox kind of fell apart, and I was doing some solo stuff, and 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 the, as the industry got smaller, uh, and uh, I wasn't with uh, you know major labels anymore because they didn't really exist, I kind of lost contact with agents and promoters and, uh, you know, venue uh, managers and stuff that, uh, that, that, that I, I used to know. Uh, and I lost contact for about 20 years. And five years ago, I decided that uh, I was going to make a concerted effort to reconnect with all the territories where I used to love performing. And that was places like Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Canada, and America, and Japan. Uh, so I, I, that's what I've been doing for the last five years, going back into those territories, because you know, there are lots of people there who, uh, you know, who love, love what you do. And it's just not fair that you don't make an effort to get there. So we, we, uh, we, we put a huge amount of effort into, into coming there um, uh, and doing it. So we're very much looking forward to coming back, of course. And we're very much looking forward to having you back. When you had that break, though, did you find the industry or the music scenes had changed a lot in those countries over the past few years? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I remember that, um, you know, although you know, Australia had a very vibrant music industry back in the, uh, the early 80s, uh, when we went over, we'd find all these bands that we didn't really know about yet. We hadn't heard a lot of the bands because they... Um, a lot of the a lot of the bands in Australia and New Zealand, I suppose, the big thing was to get out and go to London or go to you know New York or, or whatever. Um, and of course, we turn up and uh, you know you, you know cold chisel and uh, you know and from uh, from New Zealand you'd split ends and 
you know, all these bands that we, we didn't really experience, uh, it seemed to be a one-way ticket. You guys were getting all the stuff that we were doing from the UK, but it wasn't reciprocal. We weren't getting it all back here. And by talking to a lot of the Australian bands, they said it's great because you can you can go on tour and you play the, the pubs and, and hotels and all of that stuff you can do. There's a massive circuit there because it's a massive country. Um, but the big ambition was to break out of that and become more of an international act. Uh, and uh, and that, that was that was a very different attitude from us, whereas we come from a very small island, you know, the UK, and, uh, and our music seemed to you know, bounce around the world. Uh, it was a very different story back then. But having been back recently, so again, it's a whole different thing. You know, the, the, the world has become smaller because of technology and communication. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, you know, artists don't have to leave home to become you know well known or, you know all around the planet. Mm, very true. Now we do have to let you go, but finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performance industry? Well, thank you very much for your wise words and your time today, and we look forward to having you back in Australia, and I hope all goes really well with the tour. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks for uh, chatting to me. It's been great fun. It really has. Thank you. That was my chat with Midge Err, and as I said earlier, look out for his tour dates in the show notes of this podcast. They're all there, and we hope you do check him out on the road. Now for my chat with Hamilton star Brandon Victor Dixon. Enjoy.
Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. How are you? I hope everybody's doing well out there. Well, Brandon, what inspired you to become a performing artist? So, you know, unfortunately, I, I really have known from a very young age that it was what I wanted to do, and that, that was where my, my interests and my talents uh, lay, and, and so I was able to really pursue it from a very young age, and the more I did it, the more engaged I became in it, and also, you know, I, I, as I look back as an adult, as an enlightened, from an enlightened perspective. Um, you know, I know that the more immersion and engagement I had in the arts, the greater my my intelligence grew, my my dynamic thinking, my emotional growth expanded, my consciousness expanded, and just it made me a, you know a fuller person. It allows me to communicate with people. I think on more levels, it allows me to uh, affect changes in people, and that I think that should be the goal of uh, anything that anybody does. Is to is to touch people, to to expand your your consciousness, your knowledge of self, and therefore expand your 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 ability to understand more people around you. Mm. So, with that being said, do you think that having arts in the schools is a crucial part of education for young people? It's critical. I mean, the empirical data demands that. Um, I mean, we know that that arts, studies, music, education um, expand expand brain, expand children's analytical skills, uh, expand their emotional and empathic abilities at a greater and higher rate. It's absolutely critical. And, you know, uh, the philosophies that espouse simply technical arts or, or, or mathematical engineering sciences, those are all worthwhile. But, you know, unfortunately, people narrowly define artists, which doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, sure, sure you can be a writer or a singer or a dancer or an actor, and those are, those are arts, they're visual artists, but... You know, there are, for me, art is, is the creative application of, of technical skills, really, in a, in a, in a spherical format. So there are, there are doctors who perform their skills in a way that is extremely artistic. You know, their knowledge of the, the, the body and the workings of, of the physical elements, they're able to take those technical skills and then apply them in, in new and inventive ways. They can be artistic about what they do. Lawyers can be artistic in how they practice the law. I mean... Absolutely. And what training did you undertake to get to where you are today? Most of our training has been very practical. You know, really just performing, doing a lot of performing in plays and musicals in school. Fortunately, I had a very strong arts program uh, growing up. You know, my, my elementary school had a uh, music class every day, so we learned to read music. We learned how to play chimes, and I had a piano lesson once a week. We did three musicals a year, you know. One Shakespeare play a year. We sang, you know, before school in the mornings a lot. So it was, it was very much a part of my my education. And then as I got older, I began to seek out opportunities at other schools and perform there. Um, scholarship competitions. I studied in London when I was in high school in Oxford. Um, and then I, I went to school here in New York City at Columbia University, and I spent a lot of my time seeing shows, performing at school, taking classes, and And when you joined your first Broadway show, was that a particularly scary experience for you? It was. 
It, it was. I mean, there was there was a level of absolute elation, um, and, and and to a certain extent comfort because it's just what I had been doing. But you know, the, my first show was Lion King. I was Simba, and I had to leave leave college early to do it and move to Chicago. So I was in a new city, new environment. Left all my friends before graduation, and I was working on a role that was difficult for me. And for the first time in my life, you know, it wasn't just something I was volunteering to do. It was a job. I was the lead of a multi-million dollar production, one of the most popular productions in the world, run by one of the most powerful entertainment companies in the world. And so, you know, and because I was having difficulty with the material for the first time in my life, you know, I, I had never encountered that kind of circumstance. I had never encountered those challenges. So, you know, the feelings of they're, they're going to fire me or they're secretly training somebody to take over for me or that, you know, those kinds of things plagued me um, throughout the beginnings of that process. And it was a real, real growth or uh, extremely, the most valuable um, professional experience in my life. I grew a great deal mm. in that process. And do you still get nerves now before you perform or is that sort of petered out the more and more you've uh, worked professionally? Uh, it's, it's mostly petered out. I mean, there are, there are you know, when I try new things sometimes, there might be a, a wave of a wave of, of, of mild anticipation, I would call it. It's anxiety, but, um, but no, I mean, at this point, I'm, I, I feel very fortunate, actually, at this point, that I, I feel a level of comfort and confidence in my abilities and my sense of self to really, truly, openly engage in my art and to let people see me and let whatever comes out be the thing that is, is, is supposed to come out. Mm. I'm trusting that that will communicate what I'm trying to communicate. That's a nice, it's perfect or not. That's a nice confidence to have, I think, because it, it things like that, you know, the ability to be not perfect can plague a lot of artists, that I've, especially those that I've spoken Absolutely. to. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to reach that level. Mm. It's a time. It's a time. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of sort of high-pressure projects, you're currently starring in Hamilton, a show that's redefined musicals and broken box office records for Broadway. When the opportunity arose, was there any trepidation to join the cast? Uh, I mean, no, I didn't. I, I turned the job down a couple times first because I didn't. I didn't want to do it, but eventually, circumstances kind of aligned. To make it make sense, um, and also the you know, like the more I, I spent time with the material, I began to I began to appreciate the opportunity for creative expression that it was, was going to provide. So, so then I became excited, but I was never I was never daunted by the material or the size of the show or its popularity or any of that. And is there a different level of excitement or expectation in the house? because of its internet fame and its, uh, I suppose, global popularity in a way that we haven't really seen in musicals before prior to each show? Um, well, I, you know, one thing, I don't think that's true. Uh, I don't think some of the, some of the, the, the things that are focused about the show and its oppression are, are, are true. In this era, and the, with the aid of, of social media, the ability to... to pump content and to drive excitement at a faster pace. I think that exists, but I mean, essentially, essentially, uh, Hamilton is the latest arrival of our time. 
Labels are up with a huge, huge global phenomenon that plays, that continues to play all over the world about a revolution in a country. Like it, it's, it's, it's very much based. It, it, it's very, there are a lot of parallels. Um, and same thing, ranking was a huge global phenomenon. It, it transformed how we see musical theater and how we how we looked at theater. And it brought in a lot of other kind of creative elements to the theater that hadn't been used quite regularly. And so Lynn gets that credit as well by, by more firmly immersing theater. It wasn't the, it's not the first time hip-hop and R&B have been on in musical theater, been on stage, but it's certainly the, the first time that this level of immersion and, and, uh, and combination of uh, like the traditional vernacular styles and, and mainstream current vernacular styles have been merged and certainly to the greatest level of success. Um, so I, I, I think that, that, that's a more realistic picture that has been painted about the process in the industry and what kind of shows have come through the industry. But, yes, the level of excitement, um, we haven't seen a show like this in, 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 a, in a generation, I would say, and the level of excitement and the anticipation of the show that is certainly possible in the audience. Mm. Um, particularly because, again, you, 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 see, you think about how ubiquitous Hamilton is in the world, but there's only, well, now there are two, but up until two weeks ago, there was only one place in the world where you could see her the past two years. And so that's part of the exclusivity of it is part of what drives that forever. People have been, people have been holding on to these tickets for a year, two years, and so there is that level of, of excitement in the audience, which is exciting. It certainly is. And do you think Hamilton closely relates or in any way mirrors the current political state in America? Hamilton describes uh, an imperfect, the, 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 the seek to create a more perfect union. My highly flawed, treacherous, arrogant, racist individuals then it, with, with, with ideas and ideals that were greater than themselves. And I think the greatest aspect of those founding fathers is that they did aspire to things greater than they they were currently embodying, and they knew that they were they, they were they were creating a document that was going to need to adapt and change and evolve and accommodate a contentious group of people who left a country because they didn't think that they could act according they couldn't act together according to the precepts that that country was setting out. For them. So you have a bunch of disen, quote unquote disenfranchised people who have a, a, a lot of different conflicting views about how they should live their lives, and now they've got to form their own system of government with all of those conflicts, some of them more than just an upright and some of them selfish and, uh, and financially motivated. And, you know, they have to seek to come together and put in place a system that would allow them to exist with their differences and allow them to evolve as their differences evolve in their, in their, in their education subgroup. And you see a lot of those things playing out now. We have imperfect candidates with dealing with a, you know an imperfect electorate seeking, well, hopefully seeking to form a more perfect union. Mm. Well, speaking of election night, you were actually performing an original song called We Are for MTV the moment the election was called. What was that experience like? Well, I mean, it was, it was a little odd. I mean, I, one of the reasons I wanted to perform the song is because, I mean, the song is very much nonpartisan. Um, it's a song that speaks not to politics or to uh, to 
systems of government. It's a song that speaks to people and communities. And, you know, a lot of times we, we've, we've gotten so caught up in the structures of our life that we forget that the systems are, are a fiction. We are real. We create them. We empower them. They're supposed to be tools for our betterment. Um, and so the message of the song was to just say to everybody, no matter, there, there are a lot of different feelings and experiences being expressed right now, but the fact of the matter is we have to remember that the goal is not for us to win, to fight each other and to win. The goal is to, is to, to understand each other and to grow and to evolve. And so, you know, performing that song in a, in a room full of people who were, I'm very much hoping for for a, a, a Hillary Clinton win and finding that that wasn't coming to pass. It did make it more difficult, but the point of my song was to was to carry a specific message no matter what, no matter who won. Because even if Hillary won, I mean, the world today is the same as it was yesterday. Like, that, it literally almost nothing would have changed. And... A Hillary Clinton presidency, if that's what people were voting for, does not guarantee uh, uh, the elimination of a lot of the struggles that a wide swath of people are going through. In fact, you know, and for some of those people, a Hillary Clinton presidency meant doom for a lot of the things that many people um, are, are seeking and, 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 and wanting to fight for, just as, you know, Donald Trump comes with a complicated set of results as well. And so the point is to, is to get people not to look to empower one person, but to look to empower themselves and each other. Does you know, there's no savior. There are no saviors. That is a fallacy. There are no saviors. So the power is yours. The power is mine. Sorry. That's all right. No. So it's certainly a very, a very powerful message to be conveying through song. Are you planning to release that as a single or online where people can download it and you know hear that message worldwide? Because I think it's a sentiment that needs to be I shared am. everywhere. I am. I plan on releasing it during the holidays. So in the next couple of weeks, it'll be up. That's fantastic. And obviously, there's a lot of performance pressure on you with the shows and with gigs like that. So how do you ensure that you stay healthy physically and vocally when you're doing all these performances in a very short space of time? I sleep whenever I can, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I sleep. I'm, I'm shooting a television show right now as well. So... You know, it's just a bit kind of trying to be very responsible about how I manage my time. Sleep when I can and, and you know, take vitamins and try and eat right. Uh, and and when you get the time to, to, to rest and laugh, to make sure you take it. Hmm. And just career-wise, you've received two Tony nominations for your Broadway work. When you get recognition like this, does it make it easier to find other work in the long run? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because, you know, well, I don't know. Everybody's, everybody's looking for shorthand identifiers, right? As we move through the world, we meet people, we see things, and we, we immediately get to process information based on what people look like, what they've done, what they say, what they, how they're dressed, where they're going, you know, and so, so we can try and figure out who these people are, what they can provide, what they can't provide, what we need to do. And so, you know, things like that's only nomination in the industry sends people a signal that I am a certain kind of performer, my work operates at a certain level, I possess the, the means to accomplish certain things, and so therefore, more opportunities are given to me because they quote unquote know, or they at least have indicators of, of what I might be capable of. Which, is, whereas before that, 
you know, it takes it requires more time, research, more information to determine that I may or may not be able to do a certain thing. Mm. And you also mentioned that you were filming some TV at the moment. I believe it was announced yesterday you were set to join Star's series Power. Do you prefer theatre or TV acting? I haven't done enough television acting to name a preference, but I will say that theatre is and will always be uh, an extraordinary passion of mine. I mean, there's nothing like there's nothing like theatre. As I said earlier, live theatre. Like as I said earlier, you know, for me, art and performance is about the exchange of energy. And you know, when you when you can when you can create a story where you can share and commune with people right there in the moment, that is the most powerful exchange. Live performance, I should say. And then in music, you know, your concerts and, your, and, and the live shared experience is is the most valuable part of, of being an artist for me. Mm. So in a digital age where people are leaning more towards buying Netflix than, than going to the theatre, how do you think, both as an actor and a producer, that we can keep theatre alive so that people can still be experiencing that live transfer of energy? I mean, look, I don't think live performance will ever die. I mean, that's that's just a fact. There's always, there's always this, people always want to experience live performance. Now, in order to keep theatre alive, you have to make theatre affordable, uh, both in terms of people's ability to create it and in terms of people's ability to see it. I mean, it's one of the things I'm so envious of the UK. They have so much, you know, federal subsidies for theatre and for art that there, there's just a greater diversity of 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 theatre that gets created and that people get to see um, because they recognize the importance of that medium and of supporting it. And here in the United States, you know, we move in the other direction. We cut arts funding and we, we cut these things, and that's why it's so hard to produce Broadway shows, and it's so hard for Broadway shows to stay open, and so therefore it limits the variety of content that comes to Broadway. So people aren't thinking specifically about what kind of story I can tell, they're thinking about what kind of story I can tell that will make money, and that will make this investment, this extraordinary investment worthwhile. Huh? You know, and that just, that, that begins to, once you, once money becomes one of the highest determining factors of anything, it begins to limit the, the quality, the wholesome foundational quality of what that thing should be intended to provide. Mm. And is that, w would you say that's one of the reasons that you co-founded the production company, so that you can try and produce new, innovative, and, and works that may not necessarily be the most financially uh, pleasing, but works that will be artistically uh, validating? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, I, that we set out to create things that have nothing to do with trying, you know, the financial realities are the financial reality. So I, you know, I got set up to create things and I have to keep finance in mind. But, um, but I think my understanding of that can, can still allow me to seek successful plans for the kinds of stories that I think need to be told. I mean, it's like, it's like a lot of, like, for a long time, there's been this fallacy in Hollywood that you can't, you can't produce stories about about um, that star people of color or that are stories about that, that are rooted in environments where people of color are, are existing and are living and, and stories that revolve around those things because they feel like they won't make money and people aren't interested and they won't buy them and that is and so they don't take chances on those things because they use the excuse of money but that's not actually the truth if you really look at that but it takes more people who understand those facts out there working to push those stories forward for it to happen 
And it's in the, you know, my, my partners and I, we decided that we, we have the, the artistic acumen to bring these things to life and the experience. And so we want to seek to create the stories that we think are important. Because the more voices you have out there creating, the better, the better we all are. Exactly. And what shows does the company have coming up that you can tell our listeners about? We're working on a play called World Inside a Loop. And it's about five incarcerated persons who are they're, they're, they're incarcerated for murder. And they're taking a class with an actress who has volunteered to teach them how to turn their life stories into cathartic personal narratives. And the play is designed to bring us as audience members closer to the issue of mass incarceration and extreme punishment in this country and help people to recognize that we use anger and fear and distance to shape how we treat the most vulnerable members of our society, and it has to change. You know, the play forces us to really ask the question, are we more than the worst thing we've ever done in our lives? Um, and so that's, that's one we're working on. And, you know, we've also been working on uh, developing the first live stage adaptation of The Hunger Games in partnership with Lionsgate and um, Imagination. Well, that, I mean, those two projects both sound fantastic, but couldn't be more, I think, wildly different. With the, with the, uh, the, the play that you're currently looking at, obviously that's quite a, a dark and, and meaningful uh, message or story that you're trying to communicate. Do you think that makes it harder to sell than something that people instantly recognise and know they'll have a good time at, like, you know, the Hunger Games or like even, you know, Hamilton to an extent? So is that, does that ever factor in when you're producing these plays? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it certainly makes it harder to sell. But it, it just means you have to be more innovative about how you talk about it and how you sell it. And the show itself is both deeply moving and funny. And, you know, a lot of times, like, I, I, I did a show that was written by Candor and Ed called The Scottsboro Bulls, um, which is a, it's a, it's a masterpiece. It's a magnificent piece of theater. But it is about the true story of these nine black boys who were falsely accused of raping these two white girls in Alabama in 1930 and, you know, how they, you know, were all imprisoned for decades and, you know, it, it took decades to get them released and when one of them didn't end up getting out, he ended up dying in prison. And these were boys ages 13 to 19. And, like, the, it's like, it's a, it's, when you tell a story, people are like, oh, man, can't wait to see that. <laughs> but, you recognize that in order to communicate these significant issues, you have to make it entertaining. You've got to bring people in. So you have to be innovative in how you tell a story. So that story is deeply entertaining. Or rather, the, the theatrical nature of how we tell it is deeply entertaining. But people are given a very real and sobering look at um, racism, socioeconomics, and, and our criminal justice system, and, and, and these ideas and these conflicting ideas that have shaped that have shaped our country and our democracy and the things that are still at play. So it's like the, the people, I, I wish people would seek more to, to, to see theater from a broader perspective than simply entertainment value. But again, you make it entertaining in order to, in order to teach people that you put a little bit of honey in the medicine so that they fit. Exactly. And as I said, these shows all sound fantastic. Do you think that down the line, there'd be an opportunity for you and your company to take them uh, overseas, because obviously we've got listeners, millions of listeners in America, but we've also got listeners in England and Australia and New Zealand and all over the world, and I'm sure that people would like to see these plays that you're working on. Oh, absolutely. You know, the goal is 
to establish a, a successful run here, and then to and then to begin to seek other other outlets and um, territories in which we think the, the message will be valuable and the, the project can be successful. Mm. Now, just before uh, we let you go, I've got a couple of uh, listener-submitted questions from uh, from our feedback lines and from Twitter, if you don't mind. Um, so, firstly, uh, a lot of people, uh, 487 people, would like to know what it's like working with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I don't know, because I haven't really worked with Lin. You know, since I've been involved in the show, Lin has been, he's been shooting a movie in London, he's been setting up the Chicago company, he's been setting up the London company, so, I mean, I've seen Lynn here and there, and I've known Lynn throughout the years, so Lynn, Lynn's a great guy, and, you know, the fun guy, but Lynn and I, you know, I, Lynn and I pass each other in the hallway, and it's like, what's going on, man? I'll see you when you're back in town. <laughs> so yet to share the stage, then. Um, and uh, just under a thousand people would like to know how do you keep the show fresh when you do it hundreds and hundreds of times? Um, it helps that you know we have a, a, a lot of different cast members coming, uh, you know, that are on stage each and every day because there are people leaving the show or there are people doing other projects outside of the show, so you end up having different understudies and swings on a lot. But also the, I'm new to the show, and there's so much information in it, it's so deeply layered that I can continue to discover things each night. Um, and also the different audiences bring in a different energy, so you tell the story, you adapt the, your storytelling to the audience that comes in sometimes. That keeps things really interesting. It certainly would. And just under 10,000 people wrote in and asked if you wouldn't mind singing a little bit of your obedient servant from Hamilton, and I, who have never rapped before in my life, filled in for Hamilton. Would you be up for something like that? Okay, well, we'll see if you can jump in when you're ready. I will, I will give it my best shot, sir. Okay, you ready? here we go. Dear Alexander, I am slow to anger, but I told a lie as I reckon with the effect of your life on mine. I look back on where I've failed, and in every place I checked, the only common thread has been your disrespect. Now you call me a moral, a dangerous disgrace. If you've got something to say, name a time and place, face to face, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, a doctor. Mr. Vice President, I am not the reason no one trusts you. No one knows what you believe. I will not equivocate on my opinion. I have always worn it on my sleeve. Even if it's sad, what you think is sad, you would need to cite a more specific grievance. Here's an itemized list of 30 years of disagreements. Jesus. Hey, I am not being shy. I am just a guy in the public eye trying to do my best at our public. I don't want to fight, but I won't apologize for doing what's right. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, A. Ham. Hey, you were right in there. You hit that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, look, I've done, <laughs> I've done some musical theater, but I've never rapped before, so uh, <laughs> there we go. Look, um, well done, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for, for uh, joining in with that. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to get someone to sing on the show. <laughs> now, um, for our fans who'd like to stay in touch with you and find out about all your exciting projects, where can people connect with you online? 
People can find me on Twitter at Brandon V. Dixon or on Instagram at Brandon V. Dixon. Lovely. And finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performance industry? Uh, keep going, you know, and you have to understand that uh, our, our industry is, is based on, you know, a series of evaluations. And you have to recognize that there will be projects that aren't right for you, but that doesn't mean that you aren't right for the industry or you aren't right for another project. Keep going, keep honing your skills, and keep trying to absorb as much information and life experiences as you can. Because ultimately, as actors, as performers, we are interpreting, we are recreating lives. And so the more life you've lived, the more you know about the world around you, the better you'll be able to, to create. Mm, very wise words. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for your time today and all the best with the rest of your turn in Hamilton and with the TV series Power and anything else that you do uh, in the future. It's been a, truly a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. You Take too. Take care, everybody. That was my chat with Brandon Victor Dixon. As I said, he currently stars in Hamilton on Broadway and I would recommend you get tickets, but I think you'd be waiting till at least May next year. Well, this is our very final podcast for the year. Uh, to celebrate our, our 50th episode anniversary, we have released a whole lot of uh, multiple guest podcasts over the last few months. So we had uh, four guests back in the, back in the end of November and a couple of uh, three and four guests over the last few months. So we hope you've enjoyed these special bumper episodes of Talk To Me. We look forward to returning for our fourth season uh, next year. We'll uh, be taking a month or month or two off as, as normal, but then we'll be back to bring you some more fantastic and exciting interviews. And as always, don't forget to check out the wonderful supporters of the show, Palace Nova Cinemas, Mad Zombie Collectibles, and Via Vision Entertainment. All their details are in the show notes and on the website. Until next year, I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay. See you soon.